This program contains material or language which may be considered objectionable. Parental guidance is suggested. take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You are now tuned in to Unplug CT. This conspiracy theory. Your source for all things conspiracy theory, the supernatural, mysterious legends, and UFOs and cover-ups. Why the hell wasn't I told about this place? Two words, Mr. President. Plausible deniability. With your hosts, Brockzilla. <laughs> Tony J. Mirabella. King Kong ain't got shit on me! And Mr. Money on the Mic. I got a bad feeling about this. Jeff Jackson. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Exclusively on the SMS Radio Network. I just want the truth. The truth is out there. Maybe you should find it for yourself. Welcome to another episode of Unplugged CT right here on the SNS Radio Network. I am Mr. Money on the Mic, Jeff Jackson. Joining me as always, my co-host, my conspiracy co-host, if you will, each and every time we do this show, all the way from New York City, ladies and gentlemen, he is Bronxzilla, Tony J. Mirabella. Yeah, it's been a while, man. I've been looking forward to uh, talking some different stuff with you, and you know, you and I always... We don't believe anything, man. You just can't. You can't believe anything you hear. You have to form your own opinions, and uh, hopefully it'll be an interesting show for you guys. 
Yeah, we do have three topics we're going to talk about tonight on the program. Uh, you know, there's so many, and I, I got this on the Facebook page earlier today. Uh, I, I had to pick three because if I picked everyone, this would be like a 24-hour show. And, you know, I mean, let's let's be real. There are so many uh, missing aircraft that have gone down over the years since, you know, since the innovation of the airplane. Uh, it would just be crazy to cover all of them. So I've cherry-picked three that we're going to talk about tonight. The first one being uh, Amelia Earhart, her disappearance. The theories on what happened to Amelia Earhart, there are at least three or four of that I know of that we're going to talk about here tonight. We're also going to delve a little bit into the fate of Flight 19. For those of you not aware of Flight 19, it happened back in the 1940s. And basically what happened was it was a routine training flight out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, that involved five Avenger jets and... uh, not only them, but a rescue jet the next day that mysteriously disappeared as well. So 27 people were lost and unaccounted for on that particular story. We'll give our theories and opinions on what their fate might be. And the third story we're going to talk about tonight, very recent, something that happened in March of this past year, uh, Malaysian airliner MH370, which doesn't get a lot of news coverage anymore, Bronx, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what story you're referring to. I com- completely never heard this one. Yeah, there was like, I think, three or four months they really were heavy on the news. You know, where's the plane? Uh, bottom line, it's still missing. They haven't found it. There are theories surrounding it. Did it crash? Did it land? Did the U.S. government have something to do with it? Man, there's a bunch of conspiracy theories, and that is going to be our show for tonight. It is going to be conspiracy theory heavy, I assure you. Yeah, especially the last story, because I even have a conspiracy about uh, a flight that doesn't have a lot of mysteries about how it vanished that I, well, we'll get into it later. I somehow have a theory on how the two tie in, and then, of course, JJ will let me know what he thinks, and and you guys can let us know what you think uh, about my theory on that one, because I think uh, the government does a good job of getting our minds off of shit, and I think that's probably what happened. That's a very good point, but we will definitely talk about that in our last, because I think I know exactly where you're going with that. And if it is what I think you're talking about, yeah, there's a big conspiracy theory we're going to spill. But uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our first conspiracy theory story of the night. We're going to talk about Amelia Earhart and what happened to her uh, back in 1937 when she started uh, her flight where she was going to land at Howland Island. And her and her co-pilot, her navigator, Tom Noonan, uh, or Fred Noonan, uh, disappeared. And there's a lot of people that have no idea what happened to her. Did she crash into the sea? Did she land on a deserted island and live out the rest of her life where she died? Or something sinister. Was she abducted and held hostage by the Japanese government and executed for being a spy? So we got quite the conspiracy theory episode tonight on the program, for sure. Yeah, and it's also amazing. You know, I want to talk, too, about the route that she took. Obviously, she was trying to fly around the world. Uh, I don't believe she was the first to do it, but her route, I believe, was the longest. It was an equatorial route, which is the widest part of the Earth. So it's a pain to fly around the Earth if you're cutting through the middle of it. (laughs) It just makes the trip all that longer and hellacious. Exactly. 
Uh, I think there was a couple of different times this was tried, but uh, I think this was the second route uh, when everything kind of went down. Yeah. I mean, obviously, and we're, we're obviously when we talk about this story, you know, 1930s, we're, we're talking about primitive, primitive aircraft. You know, everyone, anyone who's flown today, you guys know that the airplanes today, it's all modern and there's radar and there's all this technology that the plane can basically fly itself. All a pilot really has to do is land and take off. That's about it. Nowadays, it's like amazing. But imagine flying a plane in the 30s where everything is manual. It You, you had to have some heavy-duty training, man. No doubt. Well, let's go ahead and break into this story. Uh, let's look at the first attempt that was tried here. On St. Patrick's Day of March 17, 1937, Amelia Earhart and her crew flew the first leg from Oakland, California to Honolulu, Hawaii. In addition to Earhart and Noonan, uh, Harry Manning and uh, a guy named Mance were acting as technical advisors. They were on board. Due to lubrication and galing problems with propeller hubs, variable pitch mechanisms, the aircraft needed servicing in Hawaii. So ultimately, the Electra ended up in the United States Navy Luke Field on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor. The flight resumed three days later from Luke Field, Earhart, Noonan, Manning on board. During the takeoff run, Earhart ground-looped, circumstances which remained controversial. Some witnesses at Luke Field, including the Associated Press journalist on the scene, said they blew a tire. Earhart thought either the Electra's right tire had blown out or the landing gear had collapsed. Some sources, including Mance, cited pilot error. With the aircraft severely damaged, the flight was called off. The aircraft was shipped by sea to the Lockhead Burbank facility for repairs. So this is in March of 1937. They had some issues. They stopped in Pearl Harbor and had mechanical failure. They had to scrap the mission. Well, I mean, I don't know about pilot error. I mean, it, it's hard to really say. I mean, if that many people are saying it, but I always worry sometimes that back then, you know, we lived in a society where... I'm sure there were a lot of men out there who were jealous that a woman was attempting this. And who knows, you know, that could have all just been conjecture where people wanted to put the blame on her. But I will never know, unfortunately. No doubt. Now, the second attempt, this is the one that gets controversial here. On the second flight, Fred Noonan was Amelia Earhart's only crew member. The pair departed Miami on June 1st, and after numerous stops in South America, Africa, and the Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia, arrived at Leh. New Guinea, Leia, New Guinea. I guess that's how you pronounce it. On June 29th, 1937, at this stage, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed. The remaining 7,000 miles would be over the Pacific Ocean. On July 2nd, 1937, midnight, Earhart and Noonan took off from Leia in the heavily loaded Electra. Their intended destination was Howland Island, which was about 2,556 miles away. Their last known position was near the Nakamanu Islands, about 800 miles into the flight. The USCCG Istega was on station at Howland, assigned to communicate with, with Earhart's Lockheed Electra 10E, and guide them to the island once they arrived in the vicinity. Through a series of misunderstandings or errors, the details which are still highly controversial, the final approach to Howland Island using radio navigation was not successful. Fred Noonan had earlier written problems affecting the accuracy of radio direction finding the navigation. Another cited cause of possible confusion was that the Itasca and Earhart planned their communication schedule using time systems set half an hour apart, with Earhart using Greenwich Civil Time and the 
Itasca under a naval time zone designation system. Some sources have noted that Earhart's apparent lack of understanding of her direction finding system, which had recently fitted the aircraft just prior to the flight, the system was equipped with a new receiver from Bindex that operated on five wavelength bands, marked one to five. The loop antenna was equipped with a tunable loading coil and changed the effective link of the antenna to allow it work efficiently at different wavelengths. The tuner on the antenna was also marked with five settings, one to five, but critically, these were not the same frequency bands at the, as the corresponding bands on the radio. The two were close enough to the settings one, two, and three, but the higher frequencies four and five were entirely different. Earhart's only training on the system was a brief introduction by Joe Gurr at the Lockheed factory, and the topic had not come up. A card displayed the band settings of the antenna was mounted, so it was not invisible. Gurr explained the higher frequency bands would offer better accuracy and longer range. Well, we're already starting off with some trouble here, because if she's not on the same time zone as the Itasca, and the frequencies that they're using are not in sync with them, that's a huge problem. Well, yeah, this was uh, before, I assume, universal time was invented. And one of the reasons it was invented was so everyone's on the same page. You've got that. But I just can't see. I mean, if, I, if I'm Earhart, okay, and she was by no means a stupid woman for her to be able to do, I just, I can't see her not under, thoroughly understanding how everything works before making an endeavor like this. I mean, me, if it's me, I'm going to make sure that I am that I know every detail that I possibly can. But the, the thing about it is the time is one thing, but the transmissions, you know, possibly you're transmitting on the wrong frequency and no one's hearing you. That's obviously a huge problem. No doubt. Now, motion picture evidence from Lay suggests that the antenna mounted underneath the fuselage may have been torn off from the fuel-heavy Electra during taxi or takeoff from the turf runway. Though no antenna was reported found at Lay, Don Dwiggins, in his biography of Paul Mance, who earlier assisted Earhart Noonan in their flight planning, noted that the, the aviators had cut off their long-wire antenna due to the annoyance of having to crank it back into the aircraft after each use. No. Why the hell would you take a chance of cutting off a, a vital piece of your equipment I, that see now that that's a conspiracy right there. If if it does, in my opinion, if something doesn't make sense, it's not true. That doesn't make sense. I, I'll agree that doesn't make a lot of sense. But you know, at the same time, we're talking uh, this Mance guy. I think was, and again, don't I'm not saying this is the absolute truth, but I think there might have been some jealousy on his part. Uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously, you're looking at Amelia Earhart being the first. Uh, female aviator to really go out and, and, you know, make a trip of the world and be a successful woman pilot. You know, it's it's not hard to believe that there might have been some jealousy between her, her and her peers. Damn. And then that opens a whole a whole Pandora's box when we talk about possible possible out of all the theories we're going to discuss sabotage. There you go. You know, come on, man. Now, according to uh, <clears throat> reports, during Earhart Noonan's approach to Howland Island, the Itasca received strong and clear voice transmission from Earhart, identifying as KHAQQ, but she apparently was unable to hear voice transmissions from the ship. Signals from the ship would also be used for direction finding, implying that the aircraft's direction finder was not functional. The first calls, routine reports stating the weather as cloudy and overcast, were received at 2.45 and just before 5 a.m. on July 2nd. These calls were broken up by static, but at this point, the aircraft would still be taking the long distance from Howland. 
At 6.14 a.m., another call was received stating the aircraft was within 200 miles and requested that the ship use its direction finder to provide a bearing for the aircraft. Earhart began whistling on the microphone to provide a continual signal for them to home in on. It was at this point that the radio operators of the Itasca realized that the RDF system could not tune into the aircraft's 3015 KHZ frequency. Radioman Leo Bellarts later commented that he was sitting there sweating blood because he couldn't do a damn thing about it. A similar call was asking for a bearing was received at 6.45 a.m., where Earhart estimated they were 100 miles out. At 7.42 a.m., Earhart radioed, We must be on you, but cannot see you. But gas is running low. Have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. Her 7.58 a.m. transmission said she couldn't hear the Itasca and asked them to send voice signals so she could try to take a radio bearing. This transmission was reported by the Itasca as the loudest possible signal, indicating Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They couldn't send voice at the frequency she asked for, so Morse code signals were sent instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these, but was unable to determine their direction. In her last known transmission at 8.43 a.m., Earhart broadcast, We are on the line, 157337. We will repeat this message. We'll repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. However, a few moments later, she was back on the same frequency with a transmission which was logged in as questionable. We are running online north and south. Earhart's transmission seemed to indicate she and Noonan believed they had reached Howland's charted position, which was incorrect by about five nautical miles. The Itasca used her foil, her oil-filled boilers to generate smoke for a time, but the, uh, the flyers apparently did not see it. This many, the many scattered clouds in the area around Howland Island might have been sighted as a problem. Their dark shadows on the ocean surface may have almost been indistinguishable from the island's subdued and very flat profile. So... They could hear her, but she apparently couldn't hear them. That that probably tells me that, you know, all radios have two pieces, a transmitter and a receiver. Maybe her receiver got shot. I mean, if she was able to transmit, the same antenna should have allowed her to hear them. That's odd. Exactly. The last voice transmission received on Howland Island from Earhart indicated she and Noonan were flying along the line of position, taken away from the sun line, running on a... 157-337 degrees, which Noonan would have calculated on a drawn-out chart as passing through Howland. After all contact was lost with Howland Island, attempts were made to reach the flyers with both, vo- with both voice and Morse code transmissions. Operators across the Pacific and the United States may have heard signals from the downed Electra, but those were unintelligible or weak. Some of these report tra- reported transmissions were later determined to be hoaxes, but others were deemed authentic. Bearings taken by Pan American Airways stations suggest signals originating from several locations, including Gardner Island. It was noted at the time that if these signals were from Earhart and Noonan, they must have been on land with the aircraft since water would have otherwise shorted out the electrical system. Sporadic signals were reported for four to five days after the disappearance, but none yielded any understandable information. The captain of the U.S. Colorado later said, there was no doubt many stations were calling the Earhart plane on the plane's frequency, some by voice and some by signals. And all these added to the confusion and doubtfulness of the authenticity of the reports. Wow, so either she landed or people got wind of this and were sending out false signals, which is kind of messed up. Which I find hard to believe. I, I, don't, I don't get how that would even happen, how people would, would you know, perpetrate a hoax like that. I, I just, I don't get, especially not in 1937, okay? Nowadays, sure. 1937, I just don't see that. 
Yeah, I mean, you didn't have the news, worldwide news circulating like it did now. I'm sure the general public wasn't in the know about exactly what was going on. News traveled slow. There was no internet. There was only radio. There were no satellite communications. So, yeah, that's true. I mean, what, why, who on, on God's green earth would perpetrate that type of hoax? I think she landed. If they said the only way she could have sent those signals is if she was on land, they landed somewhere. Well, that's what I was thinking, too. Now, the search efforts, uh, beginning approximately one hour after Earhart's last recorded message, the USCG Itasca undertook an ultimately unsuccessful search north and west of Howland Island based on initial assumptions about the transmissions from the aircraft. The United States Navy joined the search for over a period of about three days, sent available resources to the search area and the vicinity of Howland Island. The initial search by the Itasca involved running up the 157 slash 337 line of position to the uh, north-northwest from Howland Island. The Itasca then searched the area of the immediate northeast of the island corresponding to that area, yet wider than the area searched to the northwest. Based on bearings of several supposed Earhart transmissions, some of these search efforts were directed to a specific position, a line of 281 degrees, approximately northwest from Howland Island, without evidence of the aviators. Four days after Earhart's last verified radio transmission on July 6, 1937, the captain of the battleship Colorado received orders from the commandant, 14th Naval District, to take over naval and all Coast Guard units to coordinate search efforts. Later, search efforts were directed to the Phoenix Islands, south of Howland Island. A week after the disappearance, naval aircraft from Colorado flew over several islands in the group, including Gardner Island, now called Nicomaru, which had been uninhabited for over 40 years. The subsequent report on Gardner read, Here signs of recent habitation were clearly visible, but repeated circling and zooming failed to elicit any answer wave from possible inhabitants, and it was finally taken for granted that none were there. At the western end of the island, a tramp steamer lay high and almost dry head into the coral beach with her back broken in two places. The lagoon at Gardner looked su uh, sufficiently deep and certainly large enough so that a seaplane or even an airboat could have landed or taken off in any direction with little or any difficulty. Given a chance, it is believed that Miss Earhart could have landed her craft in this lagoon and swum or waded ashore. They also found that Gardner's shape and size was recorded on charts to be wholly inaccurate. Other Navy search efforts were again directed northwest and southwest of Howland Island, based on the possibility that the Electra had ditched in the ocean, was afloat, and all the aviators were on an emergency raft. So this plane is, is capable of landing or taking off on water, which would make you think, unless it crashed into the ocean, it wouldn't sink. If it was a coordinated landing, it would just sit there. Right. But yet they haven't, they didn't find it. Well, we're going we're gonna to touch on Gardner Island here in, in a moment, but the official search efforts lasted up until July 19, 1937. At 4 million, the air and sea search by the Navy and Coast Guard was the most costly and intensive in U.S. history up to that time. But the search and rescue techniques during the era were rudimentary, and some of the search was based on erroneous assumptions and flawed information. Yeah, I mean, searches now are, are crazy with all the technology we have. Even one person lost in the woods now is hard to find. Imagine with the technology they had back then, not knowing exactly where, what direction she went in, not knowing where she landed or slash crashed, whichever, how, my God, it must have been tedious and just hellacious to try to even coordinate a search. But obviously, 
I mean, the U.S., you know, God bless them. They wanted to find this girl and Noonan because if they didn't, they wouldn't have gone through so much trouble. I mean, wow. The plot thickens, folks. Despite the unprecedented search by the United States Navy and Coast Guard, no physical evidence of Earhart Noonan or the Electra Tinney was ever found. The aircraft carrier, the USS Lexington, the Colorado, and the Itasca, and even two Japanese ships, the oceanic survey vessel, the Koshu, and the auxiliary seaplane tender, Kamo, searched for six, seven days, covering 150,000 square miles. Wow. So the Japanese kindly offered their assistance. Well, you know, that is one particular way to look or, at this. Yeah. <laughs> or, or they wanted to find it for their own reasons. I mean, you know, like we said, the plot thickens. When, that, that, when I heard that, that the Japanese started looking too, I'm like, hmm, okay. Now, the crash and sink theory. A lot of people think that perhaps they ran out of gas, they crashed into the ocean, and both Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan died that's that's what the general consensus of uh people have been taught throughout history is that that is most likely what happened to Earhart and noonan is that they ran out of gas there was a navigation error they were way off course they ditched in the ocean and were never found and they died at sea and the plane is somewhere underwater uh in the vast pacific ocean well I don't know how that could be widely accepted because I've got quite a few problems with that. Why would an experienced aviator who sees she's running out of fuel not try to land anywhere while you have enough fuel fuel left? I can't see an experienced pilot saying, eh, we're running out of fuel. What, whatever shall I do? Well, you, there's only one thing you can do. You got to try to land while you have enough fuel left. You're not just going to stay in the air until your gauges go to zero and you drop out of the sky. I mean, that, that to me, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. I think so, too. And I think that, you know, Amelia Earhart was an experienced aviator. And I don't think that it's just a navigational issue that that, that would have happened. I think there, there's more to this story than that. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're when your car is about on empty, the first thing all you care about is a gas station. You don't say, let me drive around and see what happens. I mean, you know what's going to happen. So, I mean, it, if she was forced to land like in the middle of, of a large body of water where they couldn't, like I said, the plane, if it's landed correctly, should float. They could have hung out on the plane. Their radio equipment still would have worked. They still would have been able to send out signals. I mean, I just crashing in the ocean because of running out of fuel. I don't buy it. If there was a malfunction, maybe they did crash. But to say she just ran out of fuel and let the plane drop. Nah, that's that to me sounds totally ridiculous. I would agree. The other scenario, the second scenario in these hypotheses or our theories on what might have happened to Amelia Earhart and uh, Fred Noonan Uh is Gardner Island, which we just talked about a moment ago. Immediately after Earhart Noonan's disappearance, the U.S. Navy, Paul Mance, and Earhart's mother all expressed the belief the flight had ended in the Phoenix Islands, now part of the Republic of uh, Kiribati, some 350 miles southeast of Howland Island. Ultimately, Gardner Island, now known as Nikamuru, larger than Howland and much more visible from the air, was identified as a viable location for landing an aircraft running out of fuel. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, 
began an investigation of the Earhart Noonan disappearance and since then has sent 10 research expeditions to Gardner Island. They have suggested Earhart Noonan may have flown without further radio transmissions for two and a half hours along the line of position Earhart noted in her last transmission received at Howland. Then found an uninhabited Gardner Island, landed the Electra on the extensive reef flat near the wreck of the large freighter, the SS Norwich City, on the north side of the atoll, and ultimately perished. Mm, no food, no water but seawater. But again, if she landed, she should have still been able to transmit. Um, and they found it. Let's say they did manage to land on that island and they starved to death or were killed by animals or something. You'd find something. There was no plane found. There were no skeletons, no bodies, you know, as far as, as we know. Again, there's holes in this theory because it just it doesn't make sense to me. You would have found some evidence. Now, they said that it was a it was a good opportunity to make a landing. But the, the fact of no physical evidence kind of ruins this one for me like the last one. It just doesn't doesn't add up in my head. Well, during World War II, the U.S. Coast Guard Loran Unit 92, a radio navigation station built in the summer and fall of 1944, and operational from mid-November 1944 until May of 1945, was located on Gardner Island's southeast end. Dozens of U.S. Coast Guard personnel were involved in the construction and operation and were mostly forbidding from, forbidden from leaving the small base or having contact with the Gilbertese colonists then on the island and found no artifacts to relate to Earhart. Nevertheless, in July of 2007, an editor at AVN News in Rome compared the Gardner Island hypothesis to other crash and sink theories and called it the most confirmed of them. TIGHAR's research has produced a range of documented archaeological and anecdotal evidence supporting this hypothesis. For example, in 1940, Gerald Gallagher, a British colonial officer and licensed pilot, radioed his superiors to inform them he had found a skeleton, possibly of that of a woman, along with an old-fashioned sextant box, under a tree at the island's southeast corner. He was ordered to send the remains to Fiji, where in 1941 British colonial authorities took detailed measurements of the bones and concluded they were from a male about 5 feet 5 inches tall. In 1998, however, the analysis of the measurement data by forensic anthropologists did not confirm the original findings, concluding instead that the skeleton had belonged to a tall white female of northern European ancestry. The bones themselves were misplaced in Fiji long ago and have not been found since. Mm, misplaced, you say? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, I don't suppose we have any info. How tall was Noonan? Uh, I think he was a little bit taller than uh, Amelia Earhart. I don't know how tall she was right off the top of my head. Because first, didn't they say it was a male, but then they said it's a female of European descent? Yeah, but the, the male was only like five feet, five inches. I think she was taller than that. Hmm. All right. I'm thinking it's probably, I think they're right. It's probably somebody else. Now, going back to the Gardner Island, in July 2012, uh, THGHAR conducted an underwater expedition of the Northwest Reef off of Gardner Island using sonar mapping. Some of the sonar images suggested a possible wreckage site, although Rick Gillespie, executive director of TIGHAR, cautioned that most of the Electra's parts uh, would have likely disintegrated after 75 years in seawater. Nevertheless, in May of 2013, they announced that professional analysts of a 32-foot anomaly in these sonar images 
showed what could possibly be the aircraft. Let's get some divers and go check it out. <laughs> well, I think that that's, that's the plan. I think they're going to be, from what I understand, there was talk of them doing that. Uh, this is August of 2014. They were talking about starting an expedition to go check that out in August of 2014. So maybe we'll hear some more information. Hell, for all I know, in a month or two, maybe they'll finally come out and say they found the Electra. Well, I mean, I do agree with what they said. The body of the aircraft, which back then I assume was mostly wood, and the wheels are rubber. Yes. Oh, that no, would, not this wood. Is, this, this is a metal aircraft. This is not a wood aircraft. Oh, really? All oh, right. Yeah. So it's a metal aircraft. I, well, I can't imagine it disintegrating completely. It just wouldn't happen. I mean, even underwater, there were some radio parts in there, electronic parts, and I know for a fact that they're hard to get rid of. So I would think on the contrary, then, that the plane would be probably mostly intact still. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, obviously, guys. I mean, once metal rusts, it will start to disintegrate. But I still think you'd find a large chunk of it somewhere if, if you know, this is the right thing. This is, this is interesting. This will be something we have to follow up. You know, who knows? This, this whole rant on our parts might be moot because they might find the damn thing. It would certainly be a huge historical moment if they did find it. I agree. Now, here is the third theory, and probably the most controversial. This one is where we get into the conspiracy theory, folks. This is, this is the juicy one, guys. This is very juicy. A World War II-era movie called Flight for Freedom that happened in 1943, starring Rosalind Russell and Fred McMurray, furthered, furthered a myth that Amelia Earhart was spying on the Japanese in the, in the Pacific at the request of Franklin Roosevelt administration. By 1949, both the United Press and the U.S. Army Intelligence had concluded this rumor was groundless. Jackie Cochran, another pioneering aviator for one of Earhart's friends, made a post-war post search for numerous files in Japan and was convinced the Japanese were not involved in Earhart's disappearance. However, there are claims that Amelia Earhart and Noonan were possibly captured by the Japanese military, they were either shot down or forced to land by the Japanese military, and they were taken prisoner, and they were executed as spies. This story does get interesting. Uh, in 1966, CBS correspondent Fred Gorner published a book claiming Earhart and Noonan were captured and executed when their aircraft crashed on the island of Saipan, part of the Mariana Islands, uh, while it was under Japanese occupation. In 2009, an Earhart relative stated that the pair died in Japanese custody, citing unnamed witnesses including Japanese troops and Saipan natives. He said the Japanese cut the valuable Lockheed aircraft into scrap and threw the pieces in the ocean. Thomas E. Devine, who served at a postal army unit, wrote Eyewitnesses the Amelia Earhart incident, which includes a letter from the daughter of a Japanese police official who claimed her father was responsible for Earhart's execution. Former U.S. Marine Robert Wallach claimed he and other Marines opened a safe in Saipan and found Earhart's briefcase. Former U.S. Marine Earskin J. Neighbors claimed that while serving as a wireless operator in Saipan in 1944, he decoded a message from naval officers which said Earhart's aircraft had been found by the airfield in the village of Aslito. He was later ordered to guard the aircraft and then witnessed its destruction. 
1990, the NBC TV series Unsolved Mysteries broadcast an interview with a Siphonese woman who claimed to have witnessed Earhart Noonan's execution by Japanese soldiers. No independent confirmation or support has ever emerged on any of these claims. Purported photographs of Earhart's during her captivity have been identified as either fraudulent or have been taken before her final flight. Now, let me, let me go a little further. I've been doing some research the last day or so on this, and I've watched a lot of different things uh, as far as YouTube videos on a lot of these eyewitnesses. There are credible witnesses that served in the Japanese military. There are credible witnesses that served in the U.S. Armed Forces when they took over that area of Saipan and they took over Aslito's uh, uh, airstrip. There are villagers from Saipan. There's over 200 different witnesses that have stated that Noonan and Earhart were both sent to Saipan. The plane was not downed in Saipan, however. The rumor going around, or the official word from some of the Japanese people who have said that the Japanese military captured them, basically said that they forced Noonan and Earhart down by either shooting at them or whatever. They landed in the, uh, the Marshall Islands. So they landed at the Mimi Atoll. The plane was intact. They were captured by the military. They were sent to, the, to Junlin, which is another island in the Marshall Islands that's a prison camp. They were held hostage for a little while. Then they were sent to Saipan. They also took the plane to Saipan and put it at the airfield. They were executed on Saipan as spies for the U.S. government. Now, going back to what we talked about earlier, uh, what was it? Uh, former U.S. Marine Airskin J. Neighbors claimed while he was serving as a wireless operator, he decoded a message from naval officials which said the aircraft had been found in the airfield, the village of Aslito. He was ordered to guard the aircraft and then witnessed its destruction. U.S. Marine Robert Wallach claimed that he and other Marines opened a safe on Saipan at that airfield and found Amelia Earhart's briefcase. To me, that says a lot. When I got 200 witnesses telling me that in their Japanese, you know, government and, and obviously from the U.S. government, that the U.S. government not only knew about what happened to her by finding her information there and the plane. Why are they withholding that evidence? Well, see, here's the thing I was I was about to say, you know, maybe it was one of those deals where she wasn't a spy, of course, but the Japanese thought she was or. It was a deal where, I mean, I don't understand why, you know, did the Japanese at the time, I mean, this had to be worldwide news. Wouldn't they know that this flight was going to occur? And it, it just seems funny that if, if, you know, the Japanese got her and they were, you know, convicted of being spies and executed, what I don't get, and, and I believe that that's probably what happened, but why wouldn't the U.S. government, why wouldn't the first thing, especially during World War II, say, you see these bastards are this lady who was going to make history and was completely innocent, was downed, and her and her, her co-pilot were tortured and killed by the Japanese. This is why we're at war. You would use that. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't hide everything the u.s government would want to use that so maybe you know what there was a little spying going on here or there's something on the u.s side that they don't want us to know because all this would have done 
is make the Japanese even more horrific and more villainous during that time. So why wouldn't the U.S. acknowledge it? That's the part that has me screaming conspiracy. Something is going on. So that's what I don't get. And again, you know, there are over 200 people corroborating this story from villagers in Saipan that saw an American aviator and another male aviator that were executed by the Japanese military on the island of Saipan. Again, we're also getting claims that the Electra 10E that was her plane was found there, that evidence of her briefcase, which had her, you know, obviously a lot of her paperwork and her charting, was all in a safe in this airfield at Saipan. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm starting to wonder if some of the credence of that movie that came out where they basically were insinuating that she was a spy for the, uh, for the Roosevelt administration. It kind of makes you wonder, again, if this did happen and the U.S. military did find that plane and did find remnants of Amelia Earhart and knew it was Earhart's plane, why was it never, ever leaked out? The, the commandant that took over for the U.S. military at that point, I don't have his name in front of me, denied that any of that ever happened. Absolutely, unequivocally denies that that happened. But there are airmen. Why would Navy airmen, more than one, come out and make this claim that they saw the plane, they found things, dealing with Amelia Earhart on Saipan? And if she went down in the ocean or Gardner Island, then how were the stuff found at Saipan. I, I'm, I'm confused here. I, I, again, I don't understand why this evidence was never released unless it's A, false, which I find hard to believe, or B, it's obviously a cover-up of some type. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not, you made, you drove the point home. We're not talking about 10 people. We're not talking about 20 people. We're not talking about just Japanese or just, we've got U.S. military who are saying, look, we found this evidence, 200-plus people. I just, I don't see how you just discount that as, oh, oh, that's not accurate. Well, really? So 200 people decided, let's all make up the same lie. I mean, really? Yeah, and there were 200 people that didn't really talk to each other. You had a doctor that served in the Japanese military that was on the Marshall Islands that treated Amelia Earhart and Noonan for their injuries and then they were sent to a prison camp where you had eyewitnesses from the prison camp who saw them villagers on the island of saipan who saw them when they arrived in saipan there were witnesses that saw their execution how they were put on their knees and shot in the back of the head executed there are witnesses to these things if that uh, object that they're scanning does turn out to be the plane, guess what? I still believe this story. The only part of this story that would be inaccurate is that the plane was destroyed. Maybe the Japanese said, screw it, and dumped it in the ocean. Even if they find the plane, I would still have to give a lot of, of headroom for this story. I mean, again, you know, I'm a person who, hey, you know, the majority rules. If, if 200 people are telling you this is what went down, in my mind, I'm going to right now consider it the truth until some other evidence comes up. But again, the only part of it that makes me scratch my head is why the hell would the U.S. government cover it up, even if she was a spy? I mean, by now, let's say you revealed now she was a spy. I think everyone in Japan and the U.S. are going to say, you know what, who cares? 
you know, we're talking about 70 years or 80 years. It's over. All right. She was a spy. You're sorry. We're sorry. We killed each other millions of times over after that. Who cares? Yeah, but I mean, let's I mean, let's be honest, Bronx. How many times has the U.S. government withheld information? There's so many cover ups that, you know, uh, I mean, we could do this all night. I mean, obviously, the Roswell crash, there's reasons why they don't want the world knowing that alien spacecraft crash landed and they reverse engineered the technology. I mean, there's been several things. The Kennedy assassination. We know that's a fucking cover up. We know that's a conspiracy within itself. The U.S. government is not to be trusted on anything. Yeah, but this is one like it's amazing how they'll hide shit that's not even important anymore. I mean, like I said, I don't think do you think Japan is going to declare war on us if we came out and said, hey, look, she was a spy. Okay, we're sorry. We're all spying on each other back then. It is what it is. And even if the Japanese came out and said, yeah, look, man, we did kidnap her. We thought she was a spy or we know she was a spy. We killed her the same way we killed thousands of other Americans and the same way you killed thousands of other Japanese. It's no longer relevant. I just don't get why the U.S. government continues to cover up stuff even after a point where the truth won't hurt. And see, that's the other end of the coin, though, too. The U.S. government's involved in a conspiracy, possibly. But why hasn't the Japanese government said, hey, you know, let's 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 come clean here. We did this, Uh, you know unless the Japanese government wasn't notified of it, and it was military people acting on their own. That's the other end of the coin. Why would the Japanese cover it up as well? So I, I don't know. I, I just I think that of the theories that we've talked about, this one has the most legs to it. This one is the one I believe more than the others. No, yeah, I agree. I agree. If For nothing else but the witnesses, you know, I mean, Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't know how you could draw any, how an intelligent person could draw any other conclusion. I mean, I don't know why the, the residents of Saipan would just automatically say, oh, yeah, we saw an American woman, an American man, you know, get, get executed. And we think it was Amelia Earhart because it looks like her because she's blondish and tall. And so is the man with her, you know, and they're obviously of uh, European or American descent. They're not, you know, Asians. I think that's a big red flag when you're bringing foreigners on a land that's mostly Asian descent. You kind of know that they aren't Asian descent. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the the plane supposedly crashed in England or France where, okay, an American's an American, a French is a French. I'm not being racist, but obviously I know an Asian person when I see them and an Asian person knows an American when they see them. We have very different physical characteristics. So if they said that there were some freaking non-Asians there, I I believe it. I mean, where else would they have come from? (laughs) You know, what would two Americans, a man and a woman, who people have said physically resembled Earhart and Noonan, oh, this is just a coincidence. We came here for vacation, guys. We'll be gone in 10 days. Really? (laughs) I mean, come on. Yeah, so... There you have it, the Amelia Earhart controversy. Believe what you want. If you want to believe that she went down in the ocean somewhere north or south of Howland Island, if you want to believe that maybe she crashed on Garner Island and lived the rest of her life with Fred Noonan and and passed away there, you're obviously welcome to that. Or you can entertain the thought that perhaps the Japanese military executed Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart as possible American spies, which to me makes the most sense, especially with all the evidence the supposed evidence with the eyewitnesses, 
from credible, I think, naval officers in both the Japanese military and the United States military. I, I just I find that hard to believe that these people would just come out and outright lie about it. Well, the great thing about this podcast is it's not like JJ or I can prove that we're right. I mean, we both I we both agree and lean towards that it's the the third scenario we just went over that they were captured, they were killed, but you listening to this, maybe in your mind you have very very good reasons to think one of the other two scenarios happened. And you know what? We're not critical of you at all. Again, this is a conspiracy because at the end of the day, we don't know what happened. You just we tell you this the first episode we did, we told you numerous times, draw your own conclusions, read the facts, make your own opinions. And I mean, it's just, you know what? I hope like just for her, eventually the truth comes out for her and Noonan, because it's a shame that two people are dead, two people with families and no one knows what the hell happened to them. I agree. Definitely. Listen to this podcast and draw your own conclusions. You come here listening with an open mind. Believe what you want to believe. We're just giving you the facts and our theories as we see them fit. Yeah, and things are only going to get weirder and weirder from here, man. No doubt. We're going to take a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to delve into the possible fate of what happened to Flight 19, the team of five Avengers torpedo bombers that disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle back in December of 1945. That being said, you're listening to Unplug CT. We'll be right back with more right after this. This is Governor Jesse Ventura. You're listening to Unplugged on the SNS Radio Network. Keep listening. The time is now. Hey there, old school wrestling fans. This is your personal ring announcer, Sean Beckerman here, reminding you to download the Pro Wrestling Nostalgia podcast known as Beyond the Bell each and every week on the SNS Radio Network. You know that I'm the cream of the crop. From WCW, ECW, WCCW. The cream of the crop. Back to the NWA, AWA, World Wrestling Federation, to now WWE, we cover it all. Famous Feuds, our 101 series, The Horseman Files, Old School Music, Greatest Managers, Tag Teams, Promos, you name it, Beyond the Bell covers it. Get stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun. So tune in each and every week on the SNS Radio Network and go old school with Beyond the Bell. What you gonna do when the largest arms in the world in Hulkamania destroys you? Hey guys, it's me, Mr. Money on the Mic, Jeff Jackson. And I want to take a moment to let you guys know that personally, I appreciate the support that we've had here on the SNS Radio Network over the years. And I'm here to tell you about a new way that you can help us out. 
and show your support for the SNS Radio Network. We now have a way for you to uh, donate to the SNS Radio Network. If you go to the snsradionetwork.com main page, scroll down, there is now a donate button on the page. Now, I'm not saying you have to donate to us, but your donation is very appreciated as we do a lot of hard work on the SNS Radio Network. Spend a lot of our time and our own money to make sure that you guys have uh, entertaining podcasts and live shows on the SNS Radio Network. So, to those who have donated so far, on behalf of the SNS Radio Network, we appreciate you and your continued support. And for those that will donate in the future, again, we thank you for your support of the SNS Radio Network. www.snsradionetwork.com providing you with free podcasts since 2010. Hey everybody, this is the Bronx Father to tell you about the Get in the Zone podcast every weekend right here on the SNS Radio Network with myself, my co-host Anthony Farley, and bringing you the TNA recap. No, God, please, no, no. L Train. We also cover SmackDown, some news, and you might even get moments like this. Oh, my brother, testify! Wow. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, that, that, was, that wasn't half bad. <laughs> what the f***? <laughs> to quote, see, since I'm imitating, since I'm imitating Devon tonight, I might as well run the gamut of black wrestlers and go with Booker T. Tell me I did not just... Hear that. It's one of those things to edit. (laughs) (laughs) To edit or not to edit? That is the question. For the reaction, you cannot edit this one. Oh, shit. Anthony's dead. He's just done. (laughs) Oh, we might as well just end the show right now. So... Check out the archive every single weekend and drop us an email anytime. SNS get in the zone at gmail.com. Right here on the SNS Radio Network. The kid, you dig that.
All right, welcome back to Unplug CT right here on the SNS Radio Network. I am Mr. Money on the Mic, Jeff Jackson. He is Bronxzilla, Tony J. Mirabella, and we got more conspiracy theory talk coming your way. Two more stories to get to. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first and last ones you can kind of look at from a logistical standpoint, but this one coming up. You know, obviously, Jeff and I do research before we talk about these stories. And this was one that I'll be honest, I hadn't heard a lot about. And over the course of the last two days, I've been trying to work through my head what could have happened. And I just this one is wild, completely wild. And I think we're going to start getting into the supernatural here. Well, you know, there's a lot of cases that happen in the Bermuda Triangle. I know at some point we are actually going to do a show on the Bermuda Triangle because there have been thousands of aircraft and, and boats that have gone missing in this particular stretch of ocean. And that's a show all within itself. But we're going to talk about the most famous, probably of all of the Bermuda Triangle uh, disappearances, and that will be Flight 19. Flight 19, <clears throat> excuse me, Flight 19 was the designation of the five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers that disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle on December 5th, 1945, during a United States Navy overwater navigation training flight from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale. All 14 airmen on the flight were lost, as were all 13 crew members of the PBM Mariner flying boat, assumed by professional investigators to have exploded in midair while searching for the flight. Navy investigators could not determine the cause of the loss of Flight 19, but said that the airmen may have become disoriented and ditched in rough seas after running out of fuel. So let's go ahead and talk about what actually officially happened on this day. Flight 19 undertook a routine navigation and combat training size. The assignment was called, quotations, navigation problem number one. A combination of bombing and navigation which other flights had completed or were scheduled to undertake that day. The flight leader was United States Navy Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor, who had about 2,500 flying hours, mostly in, in the aircraft of this type, while his trainee pilots had a total of 300 and 60 flight hours in the Avenger. Taylor had recently arrived from NAS Miami and had also been a VTB instructor. The student pilots had recently completed other training missions in the area where the flight was to take place. They were U.S. Marine Captains Edward Joseph Powers, George William Stivers, U.S. Marine 2nd Lieutenant Forrest James Gerber, and USN Ensign Joseph Tipton Bossy. Their call signs start with Foxtail. Each craft was fully fueled, and during pre-flight checks, it was discovered they were all missing clocks. Navigation of the route was intended to teach dead reckoning principles, which involved calculating, among other things, elapsed time. The apparent lack of timekeeping equipment was not a cause for concerns, as it was, con it was assumed each man had his own watch. Takeoff was scheduled for 13.45 local time, but the arrival of Taylor delayed departure until 14.10. Weather at NAS Fort Lauderdale was described as favorable, sea state moderate to rough. Taylor was supervising the mission, and the trainee pilot had the role of leader out front. Called Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Navigation Problem 1, the exercise involved three different legs, but the actual flight should have flown four. After takeoff, they flew on a heading of 091 degrees for five, six, 
NMI until reaching Hen and Chicken's Shoals, where low-level bombing practice was carried out. The flight was to continue on the heading for another 67 NMI, which is 77 miles, 124 kilometers, before turning into a course of 346 degrees for 73 NMI, in the process overflying Grand Bahama Island. The next scheduled turn was a heading of 241 degrees to fly 120 NMI, at the end of which exercise was completed, the Avengers would turn and return to NAS Fort Lauderdale. Radio conversations between the pilots were overheard by base and other aircraft in the area. The practice bombing operation was carried out because at about 1500, a pilot requested and was given permission to drop his bomb, his last bomb. Forty minutes later, another flight instructed Lieutenant Robert F. Cox in FT-74, forming up with his group of students for the same mission, received an unidentifiable transmission. An unidentified crew member asked Powers, one of the students, for his compass reading. Powers replied, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that last turn. Cox then transmitted, this is FT-74, plane or boat calling Powers, please identify yourself so someone can help you. The response after a few moments was a request from the others in the flight for suggestions. FT-74 tried again, and the man identified as FT-28, Taylor, came on. FT-28, this is FT-74. What is your trouble? Both of my compasses are out, Taylor replied, and I am trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am over land, but it's broken. I am sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. FT-74 informed the NAS the aircraft were lost, then advised Taylor to put the sun on his port wing and fly north up the coast to Fort Lauderdale. Base operations then asked for the flight leader's aircraft were equipped with a standard YG an IFF transmitter, which could be used to triangulate the flight's position. But the message was not acknowledged by FT-28. Later, he would indicate his transmitter was activated. Instead, at 1645, FT-28 radioed, we are heading 030 degrees for 45 minutes, then we will fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. During this time, no bearings could be made on the flight. The IFF could not be picked up. Taylor was told to broadcast on 4805 kilocycles. This order was not acknowledged, so he was asked to switch to 3,000 kilocycles, the search and rescue frequency. Taylor replied, I cannot switch frequency. I must keep my planes intact. At 1656, Taylor was again asked to turn off his transmitter for YG if he had one. He did not acknowledge, but a few minutes later advised his flight, change course to 090 degrees due east for 10 minutes. At the same time, someone in the flight said, damn it, if we could just fly west, we would head home. Head west, damn it. This difference of opinion later led to questions about why the students did not simply heed West on their own. It has been explained that this can be attributed to military discipline. As the weather deteriorated, radio contact became intermittent, and it was believed that the five aircraft were actually, by that time, more than 200 nautical miles out to sea east of the Florida Peninsula. Taylor radioed, will fly 270 degrees until landfall or running out of gas, and requested a weather check at 1724. By 1750, several land-based radio stations had triangulated Flight 19's position as being within 100 nautical miles of 29 degrees north, 79 degrees west. Flight 19 was north of the Bahamas and well off the coast of central Florida, but nobody transmitted this information in an open, repetitive basis. At 1804, Taylor radioed to his flight, holding 270, we didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. By that time, the weather had deteriorated even more, and the sun had since set. 
At around 1820, Taylor's last message was received. It's also been reported that Taylor's last message was received at 7.04 p.m. He was heard saying, all planes close up tight, we'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. At that same time in that same area. SS Empire Viscount, a British flagged tanker, radioed she was in heavy seas and high winds northeast of the Bahamas, where Flight 19 was about to ditch. Man. Because that, that's, that's the military protocol, Bronx. If no, it, I'm, it, I'm it, sorry, man. I'm just thinking of something. Something you said really sparked my interest. What's that? Well, we'll talk about it once you're done with the story. The compasses. I have a little explaining to do, but, you know, I, I, that's just crazy. But, like, that's, that's the military protocol. If, if the leader plane ditches, then the rest of them ditch. If the leader plane flies into a mountain, guess what? Everybody's flying into the mountain. That's just the way it's going to be. That's, that's how the military protocols work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense because it, there's more of a chance of you being together in the same area and surviving. I mean, it, it makes sense as far as ditching in, you know, in the ocean. But as far as flying into a mountain, I never knew that. I mean, wow. Well, here's where it gets stranger. Before we, we get into our hypothesis or our theories, uh, it, it became obvious the flight was indeed lost. Several air bases, aircraft, and merchant ships were alerted. A PBY Catalina left after 1800 to search for Flight 19 and guide them back if they could be located. After dark, two PBM Mariner seaplanes originally scheduled for their own training flights were diverted to perform square pattern searches in an area west of 29 degrees north, 79 degrees west. PBM-5BUN0-5N225 took off at 1927 from Banana River, Naval Banana River Naval Air Station, now known as Patrick Air Force Base. Called in a routine radio message at 1930 and was never heard from again. At 2115, the tanker SS Gaines Mills reported it had, it, at 2115, the tanker SS Gaines Mills reported it had observed flames from an apparent explosion leaping 100 feet, 30 miles high, and burning for 10 minutes at position 28, period 59 north, 80, period 25 degrees west. Captain Shona Stanley reported unsuccessfully searching for survivors through a pool of oil. The escort carrier USS Solomons also reported losing radar contact with the aircraft at the same position and time. So here we have a separate aircraft that is a seaplane. It's a rescue craft. And now it has gone missing too, believed to have blown up in midair. And all they found was an oil slick. They didn't find any wreckage of the plane. Yeah, and that's even crazier because now we're talking about two separate disappearances under two completely different circumstances in the same area. One is five planes that just vanished, and now you have one that supposedly exploded. I mean, unless it's an... An obscene coincidence. I mean, an explosion? That one is a lot harder to explain than my theory about the five original missing. Well, that's what I'm saying. This this plane, the Mariner, had 13 uh, crew. So between the five Avenger flights, excuse me, between the five Avenger planes on Flight 19 and the 13 that were the crew of this Mariner, that's 27 Naval officers gone, just disappeared out of nowhere. And experienced naval officers within, what, less than 24 hours? I mean, that's, there has to be something in common here. 
again, I'm not a person who really believes in coincidences. You know, if two of those planes had disappeared and three made it back and said, look, you know, we don't know what happened to those two. Okay. Even if one had made it back, I would have said, okay, let's think about it differently. Six planes, all those people, experienced aviators, something has to be going on. Now, before we get into the investigation, there was a 500-page Navy board investigation that was, that was made available months after this incident happened. But before we get to that, here's some interesting things that happened the day of the flight. One of the pilots, one of the co-pilots, ended up not making the flight, had, asked, had a bad feeling about the flight, and basically was sick or something and didn't want to be a part of the flight. He was taken off the flight, wasn't involved. Okay, so that's one. The, the captain or the lieutenant, Charles Taylor, that was in charge of this, showed up late. He did not want to take part in the exercise that day. He didn't feel his, his head was in the right place. He did not want to be a part of the assignment that day and asked to be replaced. They refused. Oh, now we're getting into some other stuff. <laughs> That is interesting. I mean, it could be chalked up to premonition. I can sit here and name a couple times in my life where it's happened to me where I just had a bad feeling about something. But, wow. Now, let's look at the career of uh, Charles Carroll Taylor. Born October 25th, 1917. Graduated from Naval Air Station Corpus Christi in February of 1942. Became a flight instructor in October of that very same year. Um. So he was very, very well-trained. But I don't know what was going on in his personal life. He just did not want to be a part. He had a bad feeling about that flight, and he was made to go ahead with it. Yeah, I mean, in the military, you don't, you don't really even express that. You know, you might have a bad feeling about something, but you, you just you do it. You know, how disciplined the military are. You know, your dad was in the military. My grandfather was in the military. You just do what you're told. You know, you don't tell your CEO, hey, you know, I got a bad feeling about this unless it was something so overwhelmingly freaking strong for an experienced, hardcore military man like this to actually say or, or vocalize. I've got a bad feeling that that is completely weird, <laughs> completely so let's jump into the investigation report. A uh, 500-page Navy Board of Investigation published a few months later made several observations, one being Taylor had mistakenly believed that the small islands he passed over were the Florida Keys. So his flight was over the Gulf of Mexico and heading northeast would take them to Florida. It was determined that Taylor had passed over the Bahamas as scheduled and did in fact lead his flight to the northeast over the Atlantic. The report noted that some subordinate officers did likely know their appropriate position, as indicated by radio transmission, stating that flying west would result in reaching the mainland. Taylor, although an excellent combat pilot and officer with the Navy, had a tendency to fly by the seat of his pants, getting lost several times in the process. Citations noted, it was also twice during such times that he had to ditch his plane in the Pacific to be rescued, but this time he would be confused about what was happening to him. Taylor was not at fault because the compasses stopped working. The loss of PBM-5BUNO-59225 was attributed to an explosion. This report was subsequently amended, case unknown, by the Navy after Taylor's mother contended that the Navy was unfairly blaming her son for the loss of five aircraft and 14 men, while the Navy had neither the bodies nor the evidence or the airplanes as evidence. 
Had Flight 19 actually been where Taylor believed it to be, landfall with Florida coastline would have been reached in a matter of 10 to 20 minutes or less, depending on how far they were. Later, a reconstruction of the incident showed the islands visible to Taylor were probably the Bahamas, well northwest of the Keys, and that Flight 19 was exactly where it should have been. The Board of Investigation found that because of this belief that it was a base course toward Florida, Taylor actually guided the flight northeast and out to sea. Further, it was general knowledge that NAS Fort Lauderdale that if a pilot ever became lost in the area to fly at a 270 degree west or in evening hours toward the sunset of the compass had failed, by the time the flight actually turned west, they were likely so far out to sea they had already passed the aircraft's fuel endurance. This factor, combined with bad weather and the ditching characteristics of the Avenger, meant that there was little hope of rescue, even if they had managed to stay afloat. It is possible that Taylor overshot Castaway Cay and instead reached another landmass in southern Abaco Island. He then proceeded northwest as planned. He fully expected to find the Grand Bahama Islands lying in front of him as planned. Instead, he eventually saw a landmass to his right side, the port of Abaco Island. Believing this landmass to his right was the Grand Bahama Islands and his compass was malfunctioning, he set a course to what he thought was southwest to head straight back to Fort Lauderdale. However, in reality, this changed his course further northwest toward open ocean. To further add to this confusion, he entered a series of islands north of Abaco, which looks very similar to the Key West Islands, but was still over the ocean instead of Fort Lauderdale. The control tower then suggested that Taylor's team should fly west, which would have taken him to the landmass of Florida eventually. Taylor headed for what he thought was west, but in reality was northwest, almost parallel to Florida. After trying for a while and no land in sight, Taylor decided it was impossible for them to fly so far west and not reach Florida. He believed that he might have been near the Key West Islands. What followed was a series of confusions between Taylor, his team, and the control tower. Taylor was not sure whether he was near Bahama or Key West and was not sure which direction he was going due to compass malfunction. Well, I mean, when I think Florida... I think to myself, if you fly northwest, you're going to hit part of America eventually. You should. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, picture it in your mind's eyes, guy. You, guys, you know, you, you put a map of the U.S. in your head and you're a bit south of Florida. If you turn northwest, you might, you might not necessarily end up in Florida. Shit, you might end up in Texas, but you're going to make landfall at some point, you know? Well, exactly. Um, so, you know, one could conclude that perhaps they were so far, so far off course, they ended up ditching somewhere in the Atlantic ocean and they all perished in the water. But I mean, again, they've never found any wreckage of any of these Avenger planes. Well, yeah, I mean the, the compass thing and the weather probably screwed them too, because if, if you have the sun, it's easy. You know, if you know the time of day, which if they had watches or I'm sure one of the, the people they were communicating with would have said, look, this is the time. This is where the sun should be. I mean, in New York City, I can walk the streets and know by where the sun is, roughly what time it is and what direction I'm traveling in. So that probably had a lot to do with it, too. The storm, you know, the stormy weather could certainly have really mixed things up in their minds of what direction they were headed in. Perhaps they were headed northeast, which would take you, of course, further out to sea. Very much so. And I think, you know, in this particular situation, I, I, I believe that the Compass, they obviously ran into something. There's been a lot of interesting controversy in the Bermuda Triangle. There have been flights, uh, and I, I don't know the gentleman's name off the top of my head. There was a flight that happened in the Bermuda Triangle, where this guy ends up getting encapsulated in electronic fog. 
and he ends up going into this spiraling cloud and he ends up being in this thing for three minutes and when he when he gets out of it all his stuff is working and he's about an hour ahead of where he should be and he reached his destination i think 30 to 40 minutes before he was supposed to get there so the consensus was that he did some sort of a a wormhole or some time travel and managed to do that but see here's the thing with that with these five avengers i don't think that's what happened to them i think that most notably they probably were lost they crashed somewhere in the atlantic ocean and the currents in the atlantic ocean are just crazy so i don't think that people have found the wreckage i think quite honestly this was a case of the navigation was so screwed up because of the compasses i mean they didn't have the equipment that they have today um i i really think that what happened to them was they crashed in the ocean somewhere in the atlantic okay here's where we're going to disagree and the compasses are key here's what makes me think that this place really has something very weird going on about it because a compass is a very simple device the the earth is surrounded by an electromagnetic field and it's most powerful at the north pole as a result all compasses always point north now a compass is real simple buy a piece of cork get a little dish fill it with water stick a pin through the cork and float it on the water it will point north it's very simple it's how birds navigate there's little pieces of metal in their head that come together and they know which way north is it's pretty damn foolproof but now a compass can be fooled buy a cheap compass take a refrigerator magnet and put it near it and the compass will now start to point towards that magnet because obviously it's far stronger than the signal coming from the north pole for a compass to go out it usually doesn't mean the compass has failed it means there is something magnetic in that area that screwed the compasses were working fine i believe but i think there is a magnetic anomaly there perhaps maybe a change in the earth's magnetic field that causes compasses to point in the wrong direction or just simply spin around that's where i believe your theory that they did probably crash into the ocean but the reason they got there was because the compasses were screwed up and what really piques my interest is what is it about that area that messes up compasses well see and I, i'm with you there too i i understand how compasses work but i mean you look at the history of the bermuda triangle there's been so many ships and planes that have been lost in that area you know people have never been seen again uh you know a lot of times it's because of the crazy weather situation like i think there is some anomaly that's in the triangle there's some magnetic pulse in the bermuda triangle you know people have theorized over over the ages that the lost city of atlantis may be down there i've heard there are pyramids underwater in the bermuda triangle there's all kinds of different theories as to what causes it the electronic fog is what really interests me because it is a fog that surrounds a boat or a plane and absolutely disorients people and causes them to lose navigational control, uh, possibly crashing into the ocean. Or, or maybe it is a hub where there is some sort of a time disturbance, uh, a temporal wormhole or alternate universe opening is there. 
because a lot of people have said there's a lot of UFO activity in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, it's in a very interesting place in the uh, the latitude and longitude line of the Earth. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something that's going on over there. And I, I had saw a special a long time ago where they talked about how many pilots made the mistake of thinking they were looking at the Florida Keys and really looking at this other island mass. So it's a place that naturally would be confusing, even if there was nothing weird going on. You know, that's a, <laughs> we go back to the first show we did. Maybe if you're aliens, that's a pretty good place to set up base, perhaps underwater. Well, like I said, there's so many theories. I mean, people have, have theorized that Atlantis is somewhere under there, the lost city of Atlantis, who might be run by aliens. Maybe they're abducting the people in the Bermuda. Fuck, you don't know. I mean, that's just one of the theories that's been out there. We'll talk about the, the Bermuda Triangle on a later date because, believe me, that, that's a huge subject all within itself. I, I personally think, and I, I've given a lot of thought to this over the years because this, this case has baffled me for a long time. I personally think that the navigation was screwed up because of the compasses. Uh, I think that Taylor had was maybe not in his right mind on that particular day because a lot of the, the other pilots were disputing his orders. I think that what happened was he chose the wrong way, and they all ended up out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in stormy weather, and they all ditched into the ocean, and we've just never found the wreckage. Well, I mean, is there not a official rule where if you think your commander is being irrational, you can disobey him? You know, a consensus to say, look, you know, this guy's being irrational. Nothing he's saying is making sense to us. We're going to radio in and say, look, man, you know, do what you have to do, but we're not going to die. If it means court martial, if it means punishment, this guy is leading us to kill ourselves and we're not going to follow his orders anymore. You know, I don't know how that works. I, I don't know if maybe they did realize that, but it was too late. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I don't know either, but I mean, that's, that's kind of where we are at this point is that, you know, they followed orders to the T they weren't happy about it, but I think that they all ended up uh, dying as a result of uh, bad navigation choices by Taylor. And I know that, his family did not want him to be the blame of this, and I, I hate to put the blame on him, but he was the commanding officer, and there was a dissension between him and his crew over the course that they were taking. So, again, that's that's my hypothesis, is that they went too far out into the Atlantic Ocean, and they ran out of fuel, and they all crashed in the ocean, and it was very rough. They probably got capsized quickly because of the waves, and they've just never found... Uh, found their the wreckage now the mariner that was lost i i don't think the same rule the rules apply here there was a battleship that actually saw an explosion in the air and then an oil slick in the water but they never found the wreckage that's what that's what baffles me if this thing blew up that there would be wreckage all over the fucking there'd be a debris field yeah i i just don't know there's, there's been too many things with this area that like and then you hear about planes that pass through it and it's fine which is even more terrifying because it means that whatever force is active there can be turned on and off and is being controlled that's disturbing but i i, I really don't have I, a plane just blowing up in midair just doesn't make sense to me but i really don't know what would have caused an explosion like that i i just you know i'm at a loss i really don't know 
That one baffles me. I have no idea. Well, what scares me is that whole story about the guy who, you know, arrived like 40 minutes sooner than he should have. That right there is <clears throat> that is some weird stuff. You know, there could be some time dilation going on. You know, who knows? For all we know, all those people might still be alive somewhere or sometime. I mean, now I'm getting out there. You know what I mean? But that that area is crazy. It's weird. Since I was a little boy, three, four years old, the Bermuda Triangle, that we had a teacher in school who even told us about it. That's how infamous it is. Well, let's let's look at the crew of, of Flight 19. Uh we have FT-28, that's the aircraft that had Charles C. Taylor, the lieutenant. His crew was George Devlin and Walter R. Parpart. FT-36 was E.J. Powers. He was a captain in the U.S. Marine Corps. His crew was Howell O. Thompson, staff sergeant. Uh, George R. Pananessa, who was also a sergeant. We have FT-3 which had Joseph T. Bossy, and ins- uh, he was an ensign. Uh, his crew was Herman A. Thielander and Bert E. Ballack, Jr. FT-117 was George W. Stivers, who was a captain in the USMC. His crew was Robert B. Grubel, who was a private USMC, and Robert F. Gallivan, who was a sergeant USMC. FT-87, which was Forrest J. Gerber, second lieutenant in the U.S. Marine Corps. His crew was William E. Lightfoot, PFC, US, USMC. This was the one that was missing the other pilot. Remember that I, that I told you didn't feel right about being on it? That's why there was only one member of his crew. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at the seaplane, the BUN-05-9225, the pilot was Walter G. Jeffrey, who was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. The crew was Harry G. Cohn. Lieutenant U.S. Navy, Roger M. Allen, Ensign U.S. Navy, Lloyd A. Ellison, Ensign U.S. Navy, Charles D. Arsenex, Ensign U.S. Navy, Robert C. Cameron, RM3, U.S. Navy, Wiley D. Cargill, Sr., Seaman, 1st U.S. Navy, James F. Jordan, ARM3, U.S. Navy, John T. Melendez, AOM3, USN, Philip B. Neiman, Seaman, 1st U.S. Navy, James F. Ulsterheld, AOM-3, U.S. Navy. Donald E. Peterson, AAM-1, U.S. Navy. Alfred J. Zawicki, Seaman, 1st, USS Navy. So 27 people vanished as a result of Flight 19's disappearance. You know what, man? I, I just, they were all people who were serving their country, too. Uh, I know J.J. will agree. I think we should just, man, just give them all a moment. Rest in peace, guys. You know, we often what we often kind of just skim over the humanitarian parts of these these conspiracy theories, man. But that's just in one day, all those people gone, man. That's that's horrific. And uh, I mentioned this earlier. Marine Corporal Alan Cosner had been given special permission not to fly that day because he had a strong premonition of danger. Now you're even getting into more craziness you know the premonition of danger and everything what what is going on there is it something that can even affect people from afar so that's that's interesting that one person on this flight got out of it because he he had a bad feeling about things and then you know he gets out and 27 other people 
end up mysteriously vanishing uh, just off the face of the earth. It's just, it's amazing to me. Like I said, I know there's a lot of strange weather phenomenon. There's a lot of electromagnetic activity in the Bermuda Triangle. I don't know what caused it, but I think that because of the navigation failure, I think that uh, <coughs> Captain Taylor led, or Lieutenant Taylor uh, led them in the wrong direction, and they all, you know, they all perished in the Atlantic Ocean, and that, that sucks, but... Yeah, I mean, none of us here even believe for a second it was anything in, that he did intentionally. I mean, it was just, you know, when one guy's in charge and he makes a mistake, unfortunately, he leads everyone else to make that same mistake. It's just how it works. Now, the interesting thing about this particular flight and the pop culture surrounding it, uh, you've seen the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? A long time ago. Well, when the 1977 movie came out, it featured a depiction of the Flight 19 planes being discovered in the desert, and later their pilots are returned to Earth by peaceful alien captors. In the film, they returned the aviators depicted at the age they would have been at the time of the disappearance. But, of course, in the movie, they all have fictional names. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's optimism. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind that, disappearing for you know, 50, 60 years and then just being sent back. I mean, who knows, man? You know, that's the whole thing about this show. Who knows? You know, we don't know what happened to them. I, the, the, the problem with this one is you can't even go check the ocean because, like you said, the, the Atlantic, you know, I live in a city that's near the Atlantic, and it is rough. Those planes, even if they are under there somewhere, they could be tens of thousands of miles at this point away from where they crashed. You know, tides, drips, drifts, ocean currents, they're gone. I mean, it would probably be nearly impossible unless someone gets really lucky one day and happens to be, you know, scuba diving or deep sea fishing. But the Atlantic's a big place. Well, and on a side note, too, to, to end this out, um, in 1986, you remember after the, uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger kind of blew up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, in 1986, the wreckage of an Avenger was actually found off the Florida coast during a search for the wreckage of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Aviation archaeologist John Mayer raised the wreck from the ocean floor in 1990. He mistakenly believed it to be one of the missing planes. In 1991, the wreckage of five Avengers was discovered off the coast of Florida, but engine serial numbers revealed they were not Flight 19. They had crashed on five different days, all within 1.5 miles of each other. Records revealed that the various discovered aircraft, including the group of five, were declared either unfit for maintenance, repair, or obsolete, and were simply disposed of at sea. Records also showed training accidents between 1942 and 1945 accounted for the loss of 95 aviation personnel from NAS Fort Lauderdale. In 1992, another expedition located scattered debris on the ocean floor, but nothing could, I, could be identified. Wow, the serial numbers were different, so... We know it's not these flights. Well, unless whatever forces at work can change serial numbers, who knows? No. So, I mean, that's interesting. You know, there, there's, a, there's a huge uh, current that's right off the coastline uh, of the United States that will take and, and, you know, that will take any kind of wreckage that's down there and, and shift it all about. So the probability of us ever finding the wreckage there is null and void maybe someday you know when we actually have a, a better grasp of you know navigating the ocean floor maybe they'll find the stuff but i just you know 
I just don't know. I just find it interesting. There's so many fucking planes out there. Like, I would have thought for sure finding five Avengers, you know, within a mile of each other, that's that's the fucking flight right there. But, uh, you know, obviously that's not the case with the serial numbers not being there. So, Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's a needle in a haystack. I mean, people say, oh, five planes. You kidding me? You can't find them? Well, <laughs> think about five planes compared to an ocean. You know, it's a needle in a haystack. No, they're it, small planes. Yeah, even if they were large planes, it, it would still probably be uh, a daunting task you know and now all these years afterwards who knows again like we said about amelia maybe who knows 10 20 years from now someone will get lucky they'll find one that the serial numbers do match and then we'll be able to say okay we we can surmise what happened but that's just wow that's crazy and like you said nothing of of the big uh transport plane that went looking for them that's the craziest thing that explosion oil slick and no wreckage no bodies with all those people not one body that's crazy i know i i i'm flabbergasted on that one I, that one's gonna have to remain an unsolved mystery yeah that's that's just that is is less explainable than the five avengers i agree all right, we're going to take our final break. When we come back, we're going to hit our last story of the night, a very recent story uh, from this past year, the missing flight MH370, the Malaysian airliner, that to this day no one seems to know what's happened. You're listening to Unplug CT. We'll be right back right after this. Here we are face-to-face, a couple of silver spoons. Hey, this is Ricky Schroeder. You're listening on the SNS Network. Each and every midweek with Chuck W. And each weekend with William Walkie Walker and Mindwipe. Exclusively on the SNS Radio Network and the Chris Jones Gaming Network. Yeah. This is going to be fun. Hey guys, this is Ashley. And this is Sandro. And we're here to make sure that you check out the whole indie show each week on the SNS Radio Network. 
as both of us, along with our other co-host Randy, cover everything that you need to know on all things indie wrestling. It's your place for all the most recent indie news and event results, reviews of the latest shows from all the major promotions, and previews for all the upcoming events. We also want your feedback on any indie stuff you may have seen as well. Plus, you know, you never know, you might even get a few paperclip references now and then. So for all that and much more, listen to The Whole Indie Show every week here on the SNS Radio Network. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Hey guys, it's me, Mr. Money on the Mic, Jeff Jackson. Are you feeling down in the dumps because you live outside the United States and maybe you can't get the WWE Network? Maybe you'd like to watch Netflix from the American region. But since you're in another country, it doesn't work for you? Well, I've got the solution for you. The SNS Radio Network is recently affiliated with UnblockUs.com. If you go to the SNS Radio Network page and click the UnblockUs.com banner ad, you can sign up to get a VPN. Not sure what a VPN is? Well, it basically protects your identity online. Basically, it gives you an address online where the content you want becomes available. Here's how it works. When you click the link on the SNS Radio Network banner, it takes you to unblockus.com. And from that link, you can sign up for a free one-week trial. If you decide to sign up afterward, it's only $4.99 a month. And when you think about it, that's great savings. $4.99 a month allows you to watch American Netflix or any region of Netflix that you'd like to watch. And here's the biggie, folks. If you don't have the WWE Network, you live in the UK, you live in another country outside the United States, unblockus.com can set you up for $4.99 a month with a VPN that will allow you to have access to the WWE Network and all regions of Netflix. And you can watch it on your PS3, your Xbox 360, any device you have, you're able to use with unblockus.com. And the best part about it is, I'm not just talking about this, I'm using this service myself. So once again, go to the SNS Radio Network, click on the Unblock Us banner, and from there, sign up. And if you do that, you help to support the SNS Radio Network as they give a kickback to us to help keep all the shows on the SNS Radio Network for free. Once again, unblockus.com, giving you freedom online. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Standing on the edge of the crater, like the prophets once said, and the ashes are all cold now, no more bullets, and the embers are dead. Whispers in the air Tell the tales of the brothers gone Desolation, devastation What a mess we made when it all went wrong 
watching from the edge of the circus for the games to begin gladiators draw their swords from their ranks for Armageddon I'm nuclear I'm I'm breaking up inside Alright, we're back. Unplug CT talking about aviation mysteries that have yet to be solved i am of course mr money on the mic jeff jackson he is bronxzilla tony j mirabella man we're about to dive into some modern stuff as modern as in a few months and this one i'm not so much a conspiracy theorist as i am just someone who thinks that i'm being blatantly freaking lied to but we'll have to discuss that as the story progresses. And all of you will be very familiar with this story because it's been in the news recently. So I think this is a good, good transition moving like from stuff that happened in the 30s and 40s to something extremely modern. It's been in the news lately. I can't remember hearing anything about this in the last three or four months. Well, I mean, lately as compared to the two stories we just covered. But you're right. I mean, we're... You know, as a matter of fact, this may not even have happened. Uh, it's possible JJ and I lost our fucking minds. This could be totally, totally make-believe. Who knows? Well, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, of course, we're talking about what happened on March 8th this past year, 2014. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, MH370, disappears on a routine flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. And uh, it disappeared. No trace of it has been found. It was scheduled for an international passenger flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Disappeared on March 8, 2014 at 1.20 MYT or 17.20 UTC on the 7th of March after losing contact with air traffic control less than one hour after takeoff. At 7.24 Malaysian Airlines MAS reported that the flight missing the aircraft of Boeing 777-200ER was carrying 12 Malaysian crew members and 227 passengers from 15 different nations. A multinational search effort, which became the largest and most expensive in history, began in the Gulf of Thailand and the South China Sea, where the flight signal was lost on secondary radar and was soon extended to the Strait of Malacca and the Andaman Sea. On the 15th of March, based on military radar data and transmissions between the aircraft and the Emirat satellite, investigators concluded the aircraft had diverted from its intended course and headed west across the Malay Peninsula and continued on to a northern or southern track for around seven hours. The focus of the search shifted to the southern part of the Indian Ocean, west of Australia. In the first two weeks of April, aircraft and ships deployed equipment to listen for signals from the underwater locator beacons attached to the aircraft's black boxes. Four unconfirmed signals were detected between the 6th and the 8th of April, near the time the beacon's batteries were likely to have been exhausted. A robotic submarine searched the seabed near the detected pings until May 28th, with no debris being found. An analysis of possible flight paths was conducted, identifying a 60,000-kilometer search area. 
approximately 2,000 kilometers west of Perth, Australia. The underwater search of this area is expected to begin in August of 2014 and last up to 12 months at a cost of $60 million. There has been no confirmation of any flight debris and no crash site has been found, resulting in many unofficial theories about its disappearance. The only evidence of the plane's flight path after it disappeared from military radar over the Andaman Sea are communications between the aircraft and a satellite over the Indian Ocean. Analysis of these communications by multiple agencies have concluded that the flight ended in the southern Indian Ocean. On March 24th, the Malaysian government noted that one final location determined by the satellite communication was far from any possible landing sites, concluded that flight MH370 ended up somewhere in the southern Indian Ocean. At the time of its disappearance and the presumption of a loss of all lives on board can be verified, Flight 370 would have been the deadliest aviation accident in the history of Malaysia Airlines and the deadliest involving a 777. Flight 37 was surpassed in both regards just 131 day later after another Malaysian Airlines Boeing 77 Flight 17 was shot down over the Ukraine on July 17th, 2014, killing all 298 people aboard. Now, we're not talking about a little plane, like little compared to the ones we were speaking of. This is a plane with a wingspan of 199 feet, 11 inches, and a length of 209 feet, 1 inch. So it's 200 by 209, length and width. It's a big plane. It's bigger than my apartment that I'm sitting in right now. And it's, it's gone, folks. It's just gone disappeared no wreckage no bodies no flaming debris it's just gone and we can't find it and this isn't the 1940s this isn't the 1930s this isn't the 50s or the 60s with all the sophisticated aircraft uh locations you know with the the gps let's let's just for a second be real let's forget about everything that the aircraft encompasses right what about the passengers who all have cell phones that have GPS. And it gets even crazier than that. I mean, do you, do you want to go further about the cell phones or shall I? Well, to my understanding that three days after this thing had disappeared, the cell phones were not going straight to voicemail. They were still ringing, but nobody was answering the phones. Oh, yeah. I mean, once the tower, I mean, it, look, if you happen to get out of range of the tower, that will happen for a little bit. But after a couple hours, the tower realizes that that phone's no longer on the network, and it will dump anyone who calls straight to voicemail. It doesn't just – it doesn't ring. I know how cell phones work. And that was the really the, the huge thing I read. Like three days later, people are calling these phones, and they're ringing ten times before going to freaking voicemail. Are you kidding me? And, you know, I'm of the mind that if a plane crashes, I, I can't see it. Crashing into the ocean and staying intact, first of all, which means that water would would penetrate the plane, which means that any electronic devices would be ruined because they would be submerged. And not only would they be submerged, but as that plane starts to descend to the ocean floor, the pressure crushes the plane. Right. And not only that, but it's salt water. It's not like dropping your cell phone in the toilet where you might save it. It's salt water. It immediately will corrode and short out any electronics in that cell phone. This one is just amazing to me as someone who followed this in the news like everybody else, that 
they we just can't how do you make an excuse like that we can't find it we can't find these 200 and something people with all the radar and sonar and lidar and all this stuff that we have we can't find it we lost it with all the satellites that surround the earth that track planes i i just i find it hard to believe that a plane this size would just disappear just like that that there's been no wreckage field and what's crazy is it took a dramatic change of course or so they claim and there was no mayday the last radio transmission from what i understand didn't indicate anything was there there was no mayday we're going down help us It, it just it was gone it was there one minute and gone the next now, the interesting thing here, folks, again, I, I don't know. Maybe it is resting on the seabed somewhere. I just find it hard to believe that this plane would have crashed into the water and we're still searching for it. I can't think of an airliner that size that, that has been missing since March of this year. Still hasn't been found. There are theories, some very interesting theories, that have circulated in, in, in recent times, especially after the most recent downing of Flight 17, which was another Malaysian airliner that was shot down over the Ukraine. There is a conspiracy theory making the rounds that it was the same type of plane as Flight 370 with one major difference. There was one extra window on either side of the plane difference between these two models of planes. There are reports that say that the plane, Flight Flight 17, that was shot down over the Ukraine, people are trying to say that that has been identified as Flight MH370 because of the difference in the one extra window on either side. Wow. So what we're led to believe is maybe someone got control of this plane, landed it, and was using it now for some nefarious reason. They shot it down. But not only that. And again, this is a conspiracy theory. I'm not saying this is true. Right, right. This theory also says that the bodies that have been recovered from the wreckage of this plane that was shot down over the Ukraine were badly decomposed, meaning they were all dead before this incident happened. Yeah, but my problem with that is there's this thing called, oh, let me get out my Rolodex. Hold on. Oh, yeah, DNA. You mean to tell me that the 200-and-something people on the original flight, they have no samples of their DNA anywhere where they can compare and make say for sure that these might be the original passengers? Bro, I'm just telling you the conspiracy theory that's going around. Right. I mean, I don't know. That, that, that one is really far-fetched. It is, it is, Um, it it is far-fetched, but at the same time, I find it a little interesting, because if you remember back, I want to say five, six months ago, there was a report that someone had taken a cell phone picture that was on MH370 of an airbase in the, uh, in the Indian Ocean, which is, which is, uh, if if you don't know, Diego Garcia is a joint airbase used by the British and the United States military. Supposedly, one of the guys took a cell phone photo as they were landing at Diego Garcia. So there, the conspiracy theory with that is that the U.S. military took this plane, detained all the people, and were planning on using that flight as a false flag operation. I, I, 
I feel so horrific thinking my country could do that. Really? I mean, They're the same country responsible for fucking killing thousands of people on 9-11. 9-11, yeah. I mean, Jesse Ventura himself, that's what he called it. Remember when we interviewed him, a false flag? Wow. Now, I'm not saying either one of these is true. Don't, don't, right, right. I'm not saying that I believe either one of these. But I do find it interesting that supposedly this plane was diverted into the Indian Ocean. And out in the Indian Ocean, there's a U.S. military base called Diego Garcia. I firmly believe that whatever happened, the pilot was definitely in on it. He, he, the pilot and the co-pilot had to know what was going on because I look at the flight plan where this plane takes a dramatic right uh, left turn, like completely off its flight path. A flight path is usually as, as straight a line as possible because, here's a science lesson, folks, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So a plane tends to fly in the direct direction of where it's, it's going. It doesn't make turns. It's not like a car. And this guy just starts to deviate fucking completely from the flight plan that was laid out. Again, no mayday. No, we're having problems. No, we're, you know, there's, there's terrorist planes around us shooting at us. Nothing. So I think whatever went on, and here's my conspiracy, the pilot knew beforehand exactly where he was going and what he was doing with that plane. Well, the other conspiracy theory is that the pilots or the pilot committed suicide. And instead of a suicide, he committed genocide as well. So I don't know that I buy that. But like nah. I said, I find it interesting. There's even been some things that have popped up on YouTube where other planes have been in the vicinity like a smaller aircraft, like a military jet, at one point got in the same radar frame as this Malaysian 3H-70. And if that were the case, that would lead one to believe that perhaps somebody was responsible for hijacking the plane, landing it safely somewhere. Because, I mean, again, if that was to happen, then wouldn't that make sense that that's why the cell phones were still ringing days afterward? Yeah, but here's my thing about a false flag operation. What are the, did I pronounce that right, false flag? You did, yes. But isn't that stupid? I mean, you use the – and again, neither JJ or myself are saying that this theory is real. But why would you use the same type of plane in the same exact area, fill it with the bodies of those who had already been dead – and shoot it down. Why not just shoot it down in the first place? Th that, to me, just... Of course people are going to make conspiracy theories about that. That would be a damn stupid operation. Yeah, but think about it. What's happened since then? They've put sanctions against Russia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're right. So, Definitely. So that would, that, would be the, that would be the call for having a false flag operation, is to inflict some sort of sanctions on Russia. You know, I... To me, that hypothesis and that scenario is scary as hell, if that is indeed what happened. Uh, again, I, I have no love for the U.S. government. I don't trust the government. I don't know that they did a false flag operation. I don't know that I believe that. But when you think about it, what's happened? The world has kind of opened its eyes up to what is going on with Putin. He's being held responsible for giving arms to terrorists in the Ukraine who allegedly shot this thing down. I'm not saying that's what happened, folks, but like I said, there are theories out there. 
and really these are the only theories out there that that have really come out that's with any i guess what's the word i'm looking for with any substance to it we still haven't found any other debris or any other uh, anything from the plane well why condemn russia i mean shit our government gave fucking weapons to bin laden to fight against hussein at one time so why the fuck would we you well, know th- but no that was different they actually gave arms to iraq to fight iran whatever you know it's just like to me i don't even care it's like everything is such bullshit uh, yeah th- this one is just i mean th- this defies common sense how how an airplane just disappear i mean if i come home from work monday afternoon and my apartment building's gone something's up i mean, I mean how can it just disappear but i i find it absolutely disgusting because there is some type of conspiracy going on here whether it's the one we just mentioned i doubt it but to sacrifice and we go back to 9-11 you know to sacrifice innocent people to further some military regime is absolutely disgusting to me and anyone who partakes in it should rot in fucking hell you know the other way to look at this maybe it got shot down over vietnam that jungle is so dense you may never find the damn thing well, especially if it was like stripped down and taken apart, if they knew where it was going to be brought down. And, and I don't know. This is one that doesn't have anything supernatural to it to me, like the Bermuda Triangle or anything like that. This is some cover up that I think multiple governments are involved in, without a doubt. Well, not the current Malaysian prime minister, but the former one of the former Malaysian prime ministers has gone on record, uh, and I saw this today. I was watching an old uh, broadcast from Fox News, and I can't remember when it was when it was aired. But one of the former Malaysian prime ministers firmly believes that the United States government and the CIA hijacked the plane, and that's where it is. You know, I'll tell you, man, it's like one thing that really scares me about Obama is, you know, Bush you knew was a creep and an idiot. One thing about Bush, he was honest about the fact that he was a creep, he was a liar, and he was an idiot. Okay? That's how I feel. And to all you Republicans, I'm sorry. I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican, so I don't care what you think. But the thing about Obama that scares me, and this is the only wrestling reference that I will put into this podcast, he reminds me of Bo Dallas. Obama's the guy who comes on and he smiles and tells you everything is okay and everything is fine. He's just, a, to me, he's a fucking snake. And, I, you know, th- there has to be something going on here. My original theory is that this plane, this last plane was shot down to get our minds off the fact that the first plane still hadn't been found. But now when I, you know, think about this conspiracy theory that they may have both been the same plane, that is creepy. Well, because then you've got the other plane that's unaccounted for and the other bodies that are unaccounted for. If that's the if that's the, you know, the case, which is scary in itself. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 200 something people just vanish. And I mean, I saw like the press conferences a few days after this happened with these families. I mean, again, go back to 9-11, the families. You know, please, any info that you can give us, let us know. I mean, you know, it it had to be so frustrating sitting there calling a loved one 50 times in 10 minutes 
and their phone just keeps ringing and you're praying for them to pick up. You don't put people through that, man. That's that's just pure, unamalgamated fucking evil. You don't do that to people, man. That's and I think that that something along those lines had to have happened. So I'm looking at the timeline here of events. Uh, let me see. 7th of March, Department of Civilian Air Aviation, Malaysia. Confirmed Sabang air traffic control outside of Kuala Lumpur. Lost contact with Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 at, on March 8th, 2014, 2.40 local time. Later corrected to 1.30 local time. Malaysian and Vietnamese authorities jointly searching the Gulf of Thailand area. China dispatches two maritime rescue ships in the South China Sea. On the 8th, an international search and rescue mission is mobilized. F- focusing on the Gulf of Thailand, Natuna Islands, Archipelago, the South China Sea, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, Singapore, and Indonesia. Malaysian Airline releases passenger manifest to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Two men from Austria and Italy listed among the passengers of Flight 370 are not in fact, on board. Officials in both countries say that each of his had his passport stolen. The search zone expanded to include the Strait of Malacca, as military radar tracking indicates aircraft might have turned west from flight plan to flight path. March 9th, Interpol confirms that at least two passengers are found to have been traveling with stolen passports registered in its database. March 10th, 10 Chinese satellites deployed in the search. Oil slicks on the surface of the South China Sea test negative for jet fuel. Malaysian Airlines announces it will give 5000 to the relatives of each passenger. That's ridiculous. March 11th. Interpol says that two false identities are not linked to the disappearance. China activates the International Charter on Space and Major Disasters. March 12th. Chinese satellite images of possible debris from Flight 370 in the South China Sea at 6.7 north, 105.63 east released, but surface finds no wreckage. Malaysian government receives interma- Enter Marsat info that Flight 370 pinged for hours after ACARs went offline. Chinese media criticizes Malaysia for inadequate answers regarding Flight 370. Royal Malaysian Air Force chief says that aircraft plotted on military radar crossed the Malay Peninsula after charging towards a waypoint called Gaval at 2.15 local time, 200 miles northwest of Pinyang Island off Malaysia's west coast. It followed standard aviation corridors. Search and rescue efforts being stepped up in the Adaman Sea and the Bay of Bengal. March 14th. Investigation concludes that Flight 370 was still under human control after it lost ground control contact. MAS retires the MH370 MH371 flight number pair. March 15th. New phase of multinational search and rescue operations within two areas in the northern and southern corridors. 26 countries involved among the Northern Corridor include Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, China, Thailand, including South China Sea and Gulf of Thailand. The South, the Southern Corridor, the, the Southern Corridor covers Indonesia, Australia, and the Indian Ocean. India continues search for Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 in hunt in the South China Sea. Malaysian police search the homes of both the aircraft's pilots. March, or, yeah, March 16th. 25 countries are involved in the search. India ends its search in the Adam and Sea in the Bay of Bengal. May 17th, or excuse me, March 17th. Search area reported by Malaysian authorities said to be 200,000 square miles. As a belt beneath the last possible arc position stretching from Kazakhstan over Indonesia to the southern part of the Indian Ocean. Australia pledges to lead search 
from Sumatra to the southern Indian Ocean. March 18th, China starts an operation in its own territory. Australia conducts an aerial search through waters west and north of the Cocos Islands and Christmas Islands. Australia also conducts its first aerial search of the southern Indian Ocean, roughly 3,000 kilometers southwest of Perth. 19th of March, Australia searches the southern Indian Ocean with three aircraft and three merchant ships, transitioning through a slightly revised search area of 305,000 square kilometers to about 2,600 kilometers southwest of Perth. 20th of March, Prime Minister of Australia Tony Abbott told Parliament the new and credible information had emerged from expert analysis of satellite imagery. Five aircraft and a fourth merchant ship are dispatched to 44 degrees 302S 91 degrees 13-27 east. 22nd of March. Chinese satellite image taken on March 18th shows a possible object measuring 22 by 513 meters at approximately 3,170 kilometers west of Perth, 120 kilometers from the earlier sighting, but did not confirm the object's nature. 24th of March, Prime Minister of Malaysia announces that Flight 370 is assumed to have gone down in the southern Indian Ocean. Malaysian Airlines states to families it assumes beyond reasonable doubt there are no survivors. Search area narrowed to the northern part of the Indian Ocean to the southwest of Australia. The northern search corridor north of Northwest of Malaysia and the northern half of the Southern Search Corridor, the waters between Indonesia and Australia are definitively ruled out. An Australian Search aircraft spots two objects at sea, 1,550 miles southwest of Perth. French satellite images captured on 23rd of March show 122 possible pieces of debris. 26th of March, U.S. Air Incidents, U.K. Air Incidents Investigation Branch heads a team of investigators from other states as part of the international effort supporting the Malaysian authorities in accordance to the International Civil Air Organization Code. 27th of March, the search area narrows to 76,000 square kilometers. The satellite images captured 24 to 26 March show floating objects 200 kilometers south of the French observation. Five ships from Australia and China are engaged. Search shifts to a new 319,000 square kilometer area. 1,100 kilometers northeast of the previous search area. 29th of March. Malaysia announces that the international panel will be formed under United Nations protocols to investigate Flight 370. 30th of March. Prime Minister of Australia announces newly formed Joint Agency Coordinate, Joint Agency Coordination Center, JACC, headed by Angus Houston. Military air crew from Australia, China, Japan, Malaysia, New Zealand, South Korea, and the United States are actively engaged. Chinese patrol ship Hakun-1 detects a pulse signal, also picks up two longer-lasting signals. The 8th of April, Ocean Shield picks up two further signals 3,500 meters deep, close to those of the ones on April 5th. So we keep going. April 14th, an oil slick is found 5.5 kilometers from the estimated location of the pings by Ocean Shield. Ocean Shield ceases towed passive Sonar operations, the AOV Bluefin 21 is deployed with side-scan sonar to search for wreckage on the ocean floor, but the mission is automatically aborted on reaching its maximum operating depth. April 15th, Bluefin 21 resumes scanning after its abortive initial mission. On the 18th of April, the oil slick discovered four days earlier is determined by an Australian laboratory not to be related to Flight 370. April 24th, debris consisting of riveted metal sheets washes up on the western Australian coast. 
This is later confirmed to be unrelated to Flight 370. Uh, on the 5th of May, they extend Bluefin for 21 by... They extend the Navy contract for Bluefin 21 by four weeks. May 12th, two of the four pings they thought were from the flight recorder have not been from the flight recorder. 22nd of May, Bluefin receives search after repair. 27th, the Immersat satellite data is released. May 28th, final Bluefin mission completed with nothing found in the area and the supposed pings heard on April 5th, a day later, Australian Transport Safety Bureau rolls out area as the final resting place of MH370. On June 4th, the Australian researchers released recording of an underwater sound that could have been the MH370 hitting the water. June 12th, Malaysian minister announces that families of the missing passengers will receive 50000 per person as an interim compensation. Wouldn't the pings from a black box be very distinctive? You would think. That's what well, I'm saying. Like, they have found nothing, dude. Like, all these things they thought was it, none of it was that. Well, I mean, well, what the hell else was pinging then? I don't know. That's what I can't understand. You know, I mean, come on. It... Ah, man, I just don't know. And here's the other thing I'd like to get. I'd like to get cell phone towers. When you're just walking down the street and your cell phone's in your pocket, it pings towers constantly. Yeah, the phones rang, but when, why can't they, this would be so simple to do, they do it to catch criminals. Why couldn't you find the serial numbers of all the cell phones involved and find out when was the last time they pinged the tower. I know. That's so easy. Again, you're right. Why isn't that happening? Let's go back to this. Uh, the 6th of July, Malaysian Defense Minister Hasmuddin Hussein announces that Malaysia will be deploying, deploying more ships and equipment to assist in the search. Here's where it gets interesting. July 17th, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur crashes in the Ukraine. A Malaysian minister says this will not affect the search for MH370. July 21st, the head of the G, the the head of the JACC who is coordinating the search effort for MH370 is sent to the Ukraine to oversee the recovery of the remains of the passengers of MH17. Wow. Now did you did you get that? Yeah. So the guy that is the head and coordinating the search effort for MH370 was pulled on the 21st of July to coordinate the search effort and deal with the recovery of the passengers of MH17. Yeah, because maybe he knew who those passengers were. I mean, here's the thing, though. There has to be a manifest of this flight of the people who were on it. So I can't see how you could say it would be the same people who were on the previous flight. It can't be. There has to be a record of, of these other 200-something people getting on a totally different flight. Their families have had to know it. Uh, it's crazy. I, I'm just curious why they would pull this guy off of this to go deal with this other situation. You didn't have other people you could send? I mean, maybe maybe I'm just being petty here, but I, that just sounds weird to me, that you would pull the guy that's that's actively the head involved in the search for MH370 off of this to go deal with, MH17 being shot down in the Ukraine. And when was the last time you heard of two planes in the same general area, the same company, flight company, crashing within three months of each other? Has that ever happened in history? I don't think so. 
Well, again, you know, this is another Malaysian airliner. So I do find that interesting. And it is very similar to the other Malaysian plane that we have no idea where it is. So uh, draw your own conclusions. I'm not going to say that I think the U.S. government is involved. I'm not going to say I believe these conspiracy theories, but these are the evidence that have been presented to us. Oh, no, I'll say right here that I com- I completely believe that the U.S. government knows what the hell's going on. I believe that. I'm not saying it's true, but I also believe that there are other governments that know what's going on. I mean, for China, who is not a, you know, a country that's friendly with us to, you know, go and, and do this search and Australia's involved and all you have all this manpower, all this equipment, all this technology and they can't find it this plane and then you know well we got a ping that we think is the black box no i would think you would know for damn sure if it's a black box or not i mean come on that frequency has to be extremely unique the whole point of a black box is to find it to know what happened to the plane i would think they would set it up a certain way where it's distinct from every other signal on earth where you know it's a black box i mean come on really What the fuck? And like I said, we still have heard nothing in regards to search efforts for what's going on with MH370 in the last month or so. I haven't heard anything. You know, are they still searching? Well, according to this timeline, they are. But I've heard nothing. Yeah, and $55,000 in total for losing a loved one. Wow, that's friendly. Uh, It's better than the $5,000 that was originally going to happen. Well, yeah, it was first it was five thousand, then it was fifty. So in total, these people got fifty five thousand dollars and not to not even have the closure. You know, someone dies and you find out why they die. You mourn and you move on. These families. This is the part that disgusts me. You know, I I saw, you know, these these people pleading the grief on these people. And that's another thing. The families, J.J., of these people. Crash victims started getting very, very noisy, very noisy, as they should. I'd want to know what happened to a loved one. And then this other, you know, plane gets, quote unquote, shot down or whatever happened. And now that gives them an excuse to kind of ease us away from there. You know, I think they realized that shit was going to hit the fan. You know, hey, if we go by that conspiracy theory, send it back in the sky, shoot it down, say it's another plane but it'll get people's attention off the first one, you know? Come on. Well, I don't, I'm not saying that's what happened. I, I just, there's, there's a lot of interesting things here. I, I can't see a plane that size being lost with no wreckage. Uh, you know, the cell phone thing really bothers me. I, I don't understand how if it crashed in the ocean and was destroyed by the salt water, and I, I just don't understand how the phones would ring. And not go straight to voicemail. I don't understand how the GPS on all the phones couldn't be pulled up. I, I just, I, I'm at a complete loss. This is not the 40s. This is not a time when you should not be able to track a fucking plane that's 200 by 200 feet long. Like, I, I just, I don't get it. Obviously, something happened to this plane. I don't necessarily think it crashed at the bottom of the ocean. I don't know what happened to it. Maybe it is sitting in a hangar at Diego Garcia. Or maybe it was the plane that was shot down over the Ukraine. Fuck if I know. But I know one thing. It didn't crash in the ocean because we ain't found no fucking evidence of any debris anywhere. 
Well, not yet, unless they put some there. So draw your own conclusions. I'm not sure what to think. There are conspiracies at work that do implicate the United States government once again. <laughs> I can't believe that. I mean, that's the, that, this is the first time that ever happened. I know. I'm telling you, the U.S. government hiding something from us? Come on. Who knows? But uh, that is going to do it for our three cherry-picked stories. The mystery of the... Well, I don't even know what I'm going to call this episode. I just know it's aviation mysteries that are still unexplained. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, this last one really hits home because it's so modern and it just pisses me off. You know, I think, you know, to, to unseat a government, God knows what people do. I mean, I, I just, it's amazing, man. It's amazing how lives can be expendable when it comes to to just getting what the government wants you know this is why i don't get on planes because you know it, it it's so easy for government to do this with planes because there's such a lack of control you know a plane flies in a three-dimensional area it's not like a train it can't go anywhere but where the tracks are it's not like a car that can't go anywhere that the street isn't a plane can go anywhere and it makes it very easy to exploit that we saw it at 9-11, makes it very easy to exploit that fact and use it to fill agendas. Well, you do know that the GPS, the standard GPS that, you know, the satellites that they use are military satellites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. And the logs can be erased by someone with the right passwords very easily. So it is what it is. Like I said, I, I don't know on this one. Draw your, own uh, draw your own conclusion. Come to this broadcast with an open mind and figure out what you think happened because on my end, I think there's definitely some sort of a conspiracy involved. I just don't know by who or by what. Yeah, I'll, I'll stay on the ground. Thank you very much. Or at least not get on a plane that's going to go over any large body of water. You know, if it's over land, there isn't much you can do. Because someone's going to witness the crash. But in the middle of the ocean, you can do whatever you want. Pretty much. On that note, on behalf of uh, Bronxzilla, Tony J. Mirabella, I'm Mr. Money on the mic, Jeff Jackson. We're going to go ahead and bid you adieu till next month. I will tell you what that will be in the next few weeks because I don't know what we're going to do at the end of the month as far as our next episode of Conspiracy Theory. But we'll figure something out, won't we, Bronx? Yeah, we'll think of something. I've got a couple ideas I'll... Uh, run by you before then and we'll we'll see i mean there was there was a huge discussion that i kind of lit the fire about uh time travel on the uh, sns radio network facebook page and that's something i'm really into and something that i've done a lot of research on maybe we can do that one day you know yeah we'll, we'll discuss it time travel might be uh, might be a good one to discuss because i've got my own theories on that so we'll look at maybe doing that next month or the end of this month uh, but with that being said, we're going to go ahead and get out of here. And, um, you know, if one of your loved ones is going on a trip, they're taking a plane, make sure you tell them you love them before they go. And I'm not being a smart ass here. Just make sure that you let them know that you love them because in the world we live in today, you never know what's going to happen. You really don't. So make sure that uh, your loved ones or, you know, people that you love, if you're going on a flight, make sure that you tell everybody that you care about how much you love them, because you never know what tomorrow brings. And tell them to call you the millisecond 
while they're on those stairs coming down from the airplane, you know, tell them to call you. That's another thing that's weird. They tell you to shut your cell phones on an airplane, but yet the Mythbusters proved unequivocally that cell phone signals do not affect airplanes whatsoever. They don't affect any of the instrumentation. That's basically bullshit. But maybe I'll leave you with this. They do that because they don't want you to be able to communicate with the outside world while you're on a plane. Dun, dun, dun. There you have it. I'll leave you with that one. And leaving you, we've got a special song of the night. This one uh, was <laughs> this one was a request by the Bronx Zilla. <laughs> so enjoy this one. We'll see you next month or later this month for another episode of Unplugged CT exclusively right here on the SNS Radio Network. Till then, good night. All my bags are packed, ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn. The taxi's waiting, he's blown his horn. Already I'm so lonesome I could die. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. I'm leaving on a jet plane Don't know when I'll be back again Oh babe, I hate to go There's so many times I let you down So many times I played around and I tell you now they don't mean a thing Every place I go, I'll think of you Every song I sing, I'll sing for you When I come back, I'll bring your wedding ring So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane Don't know when I'll be back again Oh babe, I hate to go Now the time's come to leave you One more time, let me kiss you Close your eyes, I'll be on my way Dream about the days to come When I won't have to leave alone About the times I won't have to say smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never
never let me go Good night and good luck.